Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I have great news to report. We're going to be starting a new book series. And I know many of you are thinking, don't you ever slow down, Kirk? Well, I do slow down, but at the same time, if I went into a deep slow mode, many of you all would be wondering when I would ever return. Yes, some people say take a week off, or let alone take two weeks off. But you know, when you're on a roll, you've got to keep some form of momentum going along. After all, with all that's going on in the world today, or not just today, but each day, for all the negative stuff we hear in the news, sometimes you almost have to wonder what difference can be made up for all the excessive negativity in the world. That's where my call for podcasting has come into play. This is where I feel that I can make a huge difference. This might sound crazy, but it is a unique piece of a history that played out 60 years ago when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was inaugurated as president. Hard to believe that was 60 years ago, 1961, and here we are in the year 2021. During his inauguration speech, towards the very end, he challenged his fellow Americans by saying the following, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So, therefore, I feel that by podcasting, that is my way of returning the favor to my country, given that I have such a great passion for history, that I could share what I know to all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I've said it before and I could say it again, which I will do. I want to thank all of you whom have listened to my podcasts. Many of you have been with me since uh, June of last year, and a great deal of you have come along since that time. But all of you have been faithful listeners, and I appreciate you all sticking with me because you guys have done such a great job in getting the word out to countless other people about my podcasts, and I continue to urge you all to do that because we all need as much good in this world. And yes, history is not always pretty, but at the same time, sharing history and learning about the past, no matter how sensitive a subject can be, can maybe make all of us a little bit better off now than we were prior to having prior to having any more knowledge on a particular subject that we hardly knew anything about. So, many of you are beginning to wonder where do we go next? in the podcast series, or the 101 Annals of Podcasting. Well, we're going to go back in time to the American Revolution. I, I, I know that we've been there a few times in my podcast series. I have done everything in my power to move around from time to time, different eras. But the reason why we're going back to the American Revolution is because this month marks a very, very critical uh, juncture in America's history. 246 years ago, 
As a matter of fact, a week from today, 246 years ago, will play out as a very, very vital piece of history that must not be forgotten. So, my question to you all is, what could we be exactly talking about in terms of independence? Because, you know, the American Revolution itself is such a vague topic. Well, we're going to uh, learn about a, a book, well, not just so much learn, uh, it's a book that I read last year that I had been meaning to read for quite a while. And the irony to this book, written by David Hackett Fisher, was that the book itself was written a little over a quarter of a century ago. So here we are in 2021, and we're wondering right now, okay, if this book was written a little over 25 years ago, what relevance would it still have today in the 21st century as, we've, as we're into the very early stages of the third decade of this century? Well, in my um, introduction tonight, I'm going to share with you all why this topic about the American Revolution, or subject rather, I should say, is of relevant significance. So, I will give you all the title to this book here soon, but if I were to tell you all now, I would throw away uh, the surprises. And yes, while we all might like surprises, sometimes it's better to not reveal the surprises right away as long as we know those surprises have a good end result. So, here we start with our intro. America's quest for independence can be best described as a true work of art. Too often, we're told that America's first steps towards achieving independence came on July 4th, 1776. The day where 56 men officially declared this day as being their official break from England. In other words, the motion to approve the separation from England had reached a unanimous decision on the 4th of July. So let's keep in mind, folks, that uh, while, yes, we celebrate the 4th of July as our day of independence, we, we didn't just make this decision in a day's time, there was a lot of last-minute decision-making behind the scenes in Philadelphia, and some of our most prominent of forefathers remained hesitant up until the very end. But yet, when the Olive Branch petition was no longer in existence on the side of the mother country, being England, that's when the skeptics who were hesitant about breaking away from England, finally realized that we shall either come together as one, as Benjamin Franklin put it, or we shall all hang separately. Therefore, 56 men officially declared July 4th, 1776, being the official day that would lead to the complete break from the mother country, being England. At the same time, we're always being led to believe that our forefathers convened in Philadelphia for a few days to achieve the impossible. There's a famous uh, portrait. It 
It hangs in a, a lot of places, most notably in the U.S. Capitol. You see it in museums of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Robert Livingston, Benjamin Franklin, and Roger Sherman, the Committee of Five, going before um, everyone else to approve of the um, to get final approval of the Declaration of Independence. After all, Jefferson had to revise the document um, 86 times before it before it led to that final um, caption scene that that we um, see so often. But yet, every time we see it, we're just led to believe that everybody was in unity. Well, yes, they were at the end, but unity wasn't a part of everyone's um, vocabulary or let alone or let alone uh, motto. While yes, there was friction, thank heavens our forefathers did find ways to compromise, which I think a lot of our politicians in Congress could do a better job on in uh, today's unstable world. But we must remind ourselves that um, that our forefathers convened in Philadelphia a lot longer than, say, two to three days to achieve the impossible. While celebrating America's independence every July 4th holiday has become a rooted cultural norm, we as Americans, however, forget about previous sacrifices which led up to July 4th, 1776, and how true that is. The term sacrifice itself is vague, but to better define what it meant before reaching the unanimous decision in officially declaring separation from England, we must revisit the time period of September 1st, 1774 to April 19th of 1775, which involved two men. One who's an ardent patriot, whereas the other being a British general, whom is also the commander-in-chief of British forces in America. They will each go about fighting for America's future, but their missions involve seeking different end results. How can um, this story here revolve around two people when in fact the story itself should revolve around everyone as a whole? Well, I know this much, folks, that um, the American Revolution itself focuses on, ought to focus on a handful of men on the American side who made tremendous sacrifices. In other words, we have to go beyond Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, even George Washington, let alone. Yes, he was the commander of the Continental Army, but we really need to dig a little deeper to find out, to find out why other men had a lasting impact. Of course, I can name a plethora of them, like Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren, whom has often been forgotten as the um, original founding martyr. Uh, those of you who were with me when we discussed founding martyr, um, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, America's uh, forgotten hero. Dr. Joseph Warren truly, in fact, um, exemplified what a hero stood for, but yet his story had been forgotten for recent, for many of years until Christian de Spigna came along and, um, and um, reintroduced him to the greater public. 
I'll get to this uh, particular ardent patriot here shortly, because I'm sure many of you all are itching to know whom we could be learning about in this new podcast series. Before July 4th, 1776, Britain's 13 colonies had been under constant rebellion since the French and Indian, or let alone a.k.a. Seven Years' War, ended in 1763. And yes, as I said a moment ago, and I will say again, there are many prominent men who come into my mind during America's quest for independence. However, one man's story in particular, while told throughout many school textbooks, had led us to believe his mission was a one-night success. However, the opposite truth has taken a greater um, presence, or let alone has um, led to um, opposite proof that that the mission he undertook just didn't happen overnight, but that it was a mission that had been in the works for some time. Of course, we all like to hear the romantic side of our uh, forefathers' heroisms. We'd like to think that whatever hurdles they came up against didn't involve a whole lot of, um, that the um, missions were peaceful, that, um, that nobody got hurt, that no one um, had to suffer. Well, we all would like to think that, but oftentimes missions don't always have that true fairy tale ending. You know, people don't always live happily ever after. And while missions do succeed, there are um, also hardships that um, must not be forgotten at the same time. Who is this man? This man is none other than Paul Revere. So David Hackett Fisher's book, folks, is Paul Revere's Ride. This is what we're going to be discussing in our new uh, season. But we're not done just yet. Paul Revere is unique. I find him to be unique in a lot of ways, and David Hackett Fisher really touched up on it well. What do you all think of when you hear of Paul Revere? I would hope that there would be more to the man than just, oh, the British are coming. I know that there's more to him besides that famous uh, saying. For one, um, he never held any high office. In other words, he was never um, an assemblyman from the Massachusetts State Legislature. He wasn't the mayor of Boston. He wasn't um, a uh, what you call like a uh, like the equivalent of a city councilman. He wasn't like the equivalent. He didn't serve on any post that would have been like the equivalent of being like on a board of supervisor type position. He wasn't. He didn't serve in a role that would be the equivalent to being a county commissioner. The bottom line is he never held any any high office. Secondly, he didn't have any direct involvement with America's famous papers. Okay, when I say famous papers, what comes to your all's mind? How about the Declaration of Independence? He didn't have any involvement with the Articles of Confederation. He also didn't have any involvement with an article that... Um, was a precursor to the Articles of Confederation being the Articles of Association. 
And, of course, I don't want to get too far ahead into the game, but I'll just throw it out now. He didn't have any inv- any direct involvement with the uh, U.S. Constitution that would come 12 years later in 1787. He never commanded an army. Okay? Yes, he may have said that the British were coming, but his job that night was not to be that of of a co- commander. In other words, he was not trying to portray or come anywhere close to being like Dr. Joseph Warren, whom um, pretty much held the equivalent of a commander of Continental Armed Forces until uh, George Washington assumed that role in the aftermath of Bunker Hill. Paul Revere never once advertised his acts which probably was a good thing because if he had advertised his acts he might not be he might not have lived you know it's one thing to be vocal and have fierce opposition towards parliament over taxation without representation or, or including um, unfair representation in general after all stamp act townshend duties quartering act uh, the tea act the Coercive Acts, the Quebec Act, you name it. All those pieces of legislation that Parliament passed, they were, they were unfair because it was not proper representation. In other words, they never provided or allowed us to have the full proper authority to be properly consented. It's one thing to be uh, governed by an institution overseas but to be properly represented, you must have proper consent from the above. Without that, there is improper representation or unfair government. Or what I might think of as monarchy, which King George III was. So think about that. Paul Revere, like many of our other prominent uh, forefathers, was not a fan of improper and unfair representation. So how did Mr. Revere still manage to become a vital leader in America's war for independence? He had to have done something. And remember, folks, he did a lot more than just go warn the local townspeople that, hey, the British are coming. Well, despite the fact that he was seen as a messenger... (laughs) To the eyes of many, Revere himself became someone whom worked behind the scenes where the blueprints to his mission got first laid out. He was often found meeting at the uh, Green Dragon Tavern, along with other prominent uh, men like James Otis, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock probably was there, Samuel Adams. Revere was at the uh, tavern planning planning, um, not activities, but planning strategies on how to combat the presence of British authority in Boston. And and I know we will talk more about that later on down the road, but it's interesting to note that during that time, a term will be coined by a select handful of men in Parliament whom actually show sympathy towards the colonists. The two men in England who um, share Paul Revere's concerns 
along with those of John Adams, Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, and James Otis. Those two men, most notably, are uh, John Wilkes and Isaac Barry, for whom Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania, is named after. They're the ones that coined the term or the phrase Sons of Liberty. So, yes, for years I was always convinced that Sons of Liberty was established by our forefathers from within, but it turns out that we have men in Parliament overseas who share our sympathies and concerns about unfair representation that they are willing to go as far to put their own, maybe put their own lives or images on the line to say, hey, we're not afraid to sympathize with our brethren 3,000 miles away, but if we can give them any distinction, it will be sons of liberty. So we have John Wilkes and Isaac Barry to thank for that. And when you go through Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Scranton, just remember who, for whom that city is named after. Two prominent men in England, whom it, they just weren't the only two, but they were a handful of men who, believe it or not, did show sympathies towards the 13 colonies. So yes, despite the fact that many saw Revere just as a messenger, but we also know that, yes, he worked behind the scenes where the blueprints to his mission got first laid out. But once the blueprints had been laid out behind the scenes, and once outside, when everything was at stake, Revere himself had set his course, or had set the course, let alone, for what America's people must do as our greater quest for permanent independence didn't revolve solely around British troops already stationed in America, most notably in Boston, but rather our resolve, or I should say mission, was really to rid an empire whom had betrayed her subjects she just didn't betray her subjects. She betrayed her subjects based upon their fundamental rights. And what are those fundamental rights, folks? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Think about that. If our fundamental rights have been deprived, don't you think you'd want to fight for what you believe in? And that is to have those fundamental rights be restored. Sure, you could take your case to the king left and right, and Congress did. Hey, you got to give him credit before officially declaring separation on July 4th, 1776. Congress had extended that olive branch, and that meant um, writing, we're not talking little uh, small card envelopes to King George III, they wrote numerous letters that were filled with pages listing their grievances upon how they had been treated and they wanted reconciliation. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Of course, King George III, um, pretty much for the last 10 years, ever since the aftermath of the French and Indian War, when we um, refused to... Um, when we felt it was uh, unnecessary to um, have to step in and pay for a war that was funded by England, and yet England claimed their treasury was drained, 
and that they needed our financial support to just to bail them out. Well, when we refused to do that, that's when King George III finally decided to call his to call the 13 colonies his ungrateful subjects. So, we've been ungrateful to King George III for almost for just about 12 years now, folks. Think about it. The, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, has ended ended in 1763. We're close to now 12 years of being deemed ungrateful by King George III and many in Parliament. Too often we've focused our studies on the victors, being George Washington and his ragtag Continental Army forces, and that is true. We we do tend to probably concentrate more on the victors, but I think as history would have it, many would probably rather focus on the victors versus the losers. When most of us think about England before and during the actual war, being the Revolutionary War, we focus our energies on one man in particular, King George III. Public enemy number one to her subjects, America's 13 colonies. Where Paul Revere is the leading actor on the side of the Americans from the fall of 1774 to spring 1775, the lead commander for British forces in America is General Thomas Gage. I don't know how many of you all know about Thomas Gage. He's probably not someone that would come across on the top five of um, high-level uh, British um, commanders or prominent British figures before and right after the start of um, the American Revolutionary War itself. When I think of British commanders, I often think of uh, Lord General Charles Cornwallis. I often think of Colonel Banastray Tarleton, who got the nickname Bloody Ban. But I am reminded from time to time of uh, General Thomas Gage. He also served as Massachusetts's last royal governor. Gage himself was no stranger to North America from a militaristic approach. How so? Well, he had a great deal of involvement in the French and Indian War. And his service included serving alongside George Washington most notably at the Battle of the Monongahela in 1755. The Battle of the Monongahela, uh, folks, uh, I, I, I know um, some basic information on it. I would probably, it would probably do me some good to uh, read more about this battle. What I do know is that early on in the Seven Years' War, the British were caught in a very, very bad trap as they were foraging through uh, the woods, uh, and around what's known as present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, around Fort, du Fort Necessity. And they were severely annihilated by, the, by French and Indian forces. General Edward Braddock was killed. George Washington, believe it or not, was the savior. He rescued all of those whom had survived and returned them to safety. Had it not been for his heroism that day, Washington himself could have been annihilated, could have been shot, or 
whomever else survived might as well have just been taken prisoner of war. Perhaps Washington also. Of course, little did Thomas Gage know in 1755 that 20 years later, he and George Washington would be on the opposite sides. Think about it, folks. 1775, 20 years later, who becomes the chief commander of the Continental Army? George Washington, not long after the Battle of Bunker Hill. Do any of you all know who the... Uh, Interim commander-in-chief of the armed forces was, it wasn't the Continental Army, but for those of you who were with me uh, last year, how about Dr. J Dr. Joseph Warren? He was the um, interim commander of what we now know as America's first Continental Army. Dr. Warren knew that there was going to be a, a transfer and there were and supposedly when washington was named commander of the continental army he was given instructions on how to um conduct himself with the transfer of power little did he know by the time he got to massachusetts that there had already been a battle fought not just a battle but a bloody battle and sadly dr warren's life was lost But back to our focal point here, General Gage's arrival into Massachusetts, May 1774, wasn't met with a grand celebration of festivities. In other words, these he didn't have the same kind of um, welcoming like our presidents do when they get um, sworn in. In other words, they didn't have a an inauguration parade for him. Well, I think if you're a native of Massachusetts... And if you don't like King George III, you don't like Parliament, why would you want to go out of your way to, to have a, a celebration for the new royal governor? The only people who might like to have a celebration are those whom are still loyal to the crown. And believe it or not, Boston did have a fairly strong population of loyalists, not the same as, say, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but there were uh, good pockets of uh, loyalists living in Boston. So what was General Gage's mission? His mission was to enforce new parliamentary legislative measures aimed at punishing the people of Boston for their actions from December 1773, the infamous Tea Party, where hundreds of chests of tea were thrown into the Charles River, all in the name of all in the name of fierce opposition to paying the tax, or not just the tax, but the dreaded tax on tea. Parliament lifted all the other duties on other uh, goods, most notably paint, lead, glass, paper. But what did they leave the tax on, folks? The tea. And can, you, and can you blame many in Boston for not wanting to drink the tea? No. While Gage knew he had objectives to achieve, yet he was also a figure of unforeseen circumstances. How was he a figure of unforeseen circumstances? Well, when he arrived into Boston in um, May 1774... He, he brought with him a little over 2,000 troops. 
Well, you would think 2,000 troops or just over 2,000 might be enough to quash any existing problems. That's easy thinking. Reality-wise, it's not. What General Gage and his um, militaristic forces didn't realize is that they would be encountering insurgents from all directions whom weren't afraid to stand up against an evil empire. So it's one thing to come to Boston to try to put down any existing turmoil. It's one thing to enforce the new parliamentary measures, most notably those coercive acts. When I think of the coercive acts, how about the uh, Port Act of 1774? The coercive acts were a series of um, legislation, about four pieces altogether. Most notably, the, coer- the uh, Port Act is the famous one because uh, as a result of um, the people of Boston dumping the chests of tea into the Charles River, the Port of Boston gets closed and it will get re- relocated to uh, Salem, Massachusetts, being north of Boston, uh, just on the outskirts of Marblehead, Salem would become the new port. And as a result of the port closure in Boston, hundreds, not just hundreds, but thousands of people's lives are at stake. In other words, their economic livelihood will become at stake. Okay, so General Gage wants to enforce these new parliamentary procedures, but here's the problem. What did General Ga- what will General Gage lack? I know it probably sounds crazy for me to say now this, but I think I, I have no other choice but to tell you all now. General Gage does not have a plan that would allow him to be able to win the peace over. In other words, he's he's on a mission, but yet his mission will not be able to get fulfilled because there, there is simply no way for him to win the peace over. So, I'm sure many of y'all are thinking, well, why send this guy over if there's a side to him who might feel unsure about the lack of any realistic chances to win the peace? But you know what? General Gage, like many other hardliners in Parliament, including King George III, are very, very determined to do whatever is necessary to put rebellion in the 13 colonies to an end. If it means using violence, they wouldn't be afraid to do it. After all, 1770, yes, both sides were at each other's throats. We could say that both sides were, to a degree, guilty. The Boston Massacre... After all, if that didn't teach us something, um, then who's to say that um, that there? Who's to say that time may not be on um, anyone else's side? Because it truly is by now a matter of time before the inevitable will happen. While posts, while past studies and teachings focus solely on Revere's ride through town. What we're discovering now about the famous ride is that it became something larger. Besides Revere's famous phrase, or message, the British are coming, the people of Lexington, Massachusetts would forever remember how this piece of news arrived considering everything else which had taken place before and leading up to April 19, 1775. Life-altering events are nothing new to mankind 
But we as individuals from generations past and present can still recall one moment or incident where life changed. For me, it was September 11th, 2001, a.k.a. 9-11. I was a senior at Bridgewater College in Bridgewater, Virginia, in uh, Virginia's majestical Shenandoah Valley. And just a few short hours that morning, everyone on campus, including myself, saw for ourselves what had been taken from us. Innocence. I had always been led to believe that bodies of water, large bodies of water, that is, protected us. Little did we know that airplanes would become weapons of mass destruction and take out a financial building, a a military building that um, housed all branches of the military. Little did we know that... um, that little did we know that day what else could have been uh, taken from us. And while a plane did crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, Flight 93, the heroes of that flight, being the passengers, are the ones that saved, that saved us from further destruction that day. They saved the Capitol. They saved the White House. They saved everything else that could have been taken from us. For my grandparents, their loss of innocence came on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor, a day that will forever live in infamy. Whereas for my parents, it was November 22, 1963, the day President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated where they, too, lost a sense of innocence. My father told me, I've heard him tell this story many of times, uh, he and I have had many great conversations about the Kennedy assassination. I've read a lot of books on that, and uh, both of us do agree, from different generations, we both do agree that, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone. That's as far as I can go on that because I don't want to lose the focal point and also don't want to lose track of time. But what I do know is that my father told me that he was in school and the teacher came into the classroom sobbing and they didn't know what was wrong. But a minute later, um, the principal announced, told everyone over over the loudspeaker what had happened. And when they heard what had happened to President Kennedy, my dad said that you could literally just hear pins dropping. They just could not believe that something so grand, a a man who brought hope to people, he brought a new era into, um, into the lives of Americans, that this man was taken from us. I was born 16 years after JFK was assassinated, but what I do know is that if I uh, live, that if, if I could pick one president who was my JFK, it was none other than Ronald Reagan. I always believed that Ronald Reagan finished what JFK started. JFK was trying to win the Cold War without having without needing to fire a shot. That's why he worked so diligently with Nikita Khrushchev and Fidel Castro. They all came together to. Um, work out their differences, and in the end, they achieved peace. The Soviets removed the missiles from um, Havana, Cuba, or from Cuba in general. 
We removed uh, missiles from uh, Turkey, and we um, we we spared the world from a nuclear disaster. Well, Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister of England when I was growing up, had often said that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. So, you know, fighting for innocence, to put it in a nutshell here, fighting for innocence doesn't revolve solely around the confines to a courtroom, but generations past and present have shown throughout history their abilities to take stands on matters where freedom itself was under attack. It's one thing for a messenger to spread news around town, but how residents respond, well, that's up to them. It's either make or break. You either take a stand or you sit back and let the inevitable happen. Paul Revere and Thomas Gage each had a defining mission to fulfill, but yet both men were pursuing different libertarian strategies. I'm not talking about the Libertarian Party, folks. For Thomas Gage, the mission in Boston was to quash the existing state of turmoil and force not only Massachusetts into submission, but the same for elsewhere in colonial America. Gage's approach to liberty focused on hierarchy where only a select portion could attain the true rights of life, liberty, and happiness. For Paul Revere, the mission he pursued went beyond saying the British are coming to his fellow country people, but rather this message was meant to inspire America's people when the going got tough. You know, it's like that old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I think that's what he was getting at, folks. Revere issued his message, and now it was America's call to take action by taking up arms against England, whom betrayed her subjects' fundamental rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. His message that the British are coming may has some similarities to John F. Kennedy's speech, where he said at the end, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Okay, the British are coming. So what are you going to do? Are you going to um, take up arms? Are you going to um, fight not only for your family? Are you going to uh, work together with your neighbors to ensure that that the community's well-being is not jeopardized by outsiders whom don't want resolution, whom want to continue to infringe upon our rights? Or are you going to um, sit back and say, well, I'll just let Paul Revere take care of the job, or I'll let his other messengers do their part, and if they can do that, then we'll still be safe. Don't assume anything, folks. The message is very clear. The British are coming. You have to do your part to help out. We've done our part, but we can't do everything. Doesn't that, doesn't that ring a bell in today's time? You know, yes, people above you can help you, but you've also got to help yourself. It's a two-way street. Lastly, to end this intro to Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher, eight, mo- eight months, that is from September 1st, 1774 to April 19th, 1775, This time frame, or timeline rather I should say, will help us understand how and why we as Americans chose the course taken that enabled us 
to stand head to toe with the mightiest empire in the world. And New England poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, who came along well after the American Revolution, but he was from New England, he said this so eloquently about the early onset of the war. It was a famous phrase. The shots heard round the world. Of course, we don't know who exactly fired the first shots to start the American Revolution, but it happened at Lexington Commons, which is probably about close to 20 miles from Boston, uh, west of Boston. The shots heard round the world, folks. It's more than just firing a shot. What it meant was that when the shots heard round the world, it meant that we were not afraid to go head to toe, that we were not will that we were not going to back down without a fight. But it also meant that there would be no longing to return to a failed way of life. Well, what was the failed way of life, folks? Taxation without representation. Not being allowed to have a proper say in your government. Of course, taxation, yes, taxation without representation, meaning that you got taxed without your consent, but it's just one of a handful of examples of where Parliament abused its power. How about um, the Quartering Act of 1770, where British troops came into Boston, most notably, and we were forced to provide lodging to soldiers, but yet we didn't have a say on that. We, we had to feed these people. How are we supposed to know what their likes and dislikes were? So in other words, the failed way of life was improper representation, unfair laws that we were not allowed to contest. How about being... How about where Parliament wanted to send people overseas to be tried for their offenses? Isn't that a failed way of life? Okay, you commit a crime in Massachusetts or in Virginia? Shouldn't you be tried in the court system there? No, Parliament wanted to bring her subjects overseas where she, where the individuals not only would, would have been found guilty for their crimes, but they would have been um, left to rot in the jail cells. So the shots heard around the world, folks, mean that um, that there's no that war has officially broken out. There is no longing to return to this failed way of life. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I hope that this introduction has answered questions to many of you all who, for years, might have thought that Paul Revere's famous ride was just a short mission where he had said, oh, the British were coming, everyone heeded his words, and somehow the end result came out just fine. Well, we're going to learn a great deal more about this mission, but we're also going to learn about other um, incidents or situations that um, were life and death matters, but yet there was resolve in the end to those situations. We're going to learn about how Paul Revere and Thomas Gage are going to shape America in these next in the in these next eight months from September 1st of 1774 to April 19th, 1775. 
the time machine is going to um, is going to be um, an eventful one. So I recommend all of you to keep fastening your seatbelts because uh, we're not going to miss out on anything that I find to be of relevant importance. When I'm back on the air again next with you all, we're going to uh, learn about Paul Revere in his early years. After all, he has a story to tell, but it's got to start somewhere from the time he was born up until before the time uh, that war itself broke out. Thank you again for listening. I cannot tell you how much it has meant to me uh, to have so much support. And for any of you out there who want to do podcasting, well, hey, come to Anchor. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and stay safe.